Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Good to have you on the show, Yehong. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing very well. I'm really excited about this episode. I'll start with a quick introduction. Uh, Yi Hong Zhu is the founder of Zet, a media tech platform that providers pay per article access to online publication via a monthly subscription. The startup with footprints in LA, New York City, raised a pre-seed round of around 1.7 million from well-known ventures, including the community fund, MGV Capital Group. Yihong, your parents immigrated from China in, in the 90s. Your father was an engineer and your mother, I believe, was a journalist uh, who inspired you to pursue journalism. What were dinner topics between the three of you? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, because I come from a family of Chinese immigrants, we very highly value education and also success. So my parents always expected the best from me and always wanted me to get the best grades, you know, be very focused in school, just really excel in everything I do. And so excellence became a primary value in my value system, both in terms of my personal life and my professional life. And I owe a lot of that to my parents. Amazing. Early on, walk us through your thought process when you found it that uh, how did you know that this is really a pain point for the consumer? And how did you know that this is something also that could be a viable business? Yeah, I mean, they always say as an entrepreneur to solve a problem that you are facing yourself. And while I was a journalist, while I was a student, while I was a young professional working in tech, one consistent problem that I had faced over years and years was just not getting access to the articles that I wanted, not being able to read the information that I wanted without having to shell out a lot of money for different news subscriptions. And one thing I realized while I was working as a journalist was that I could literally not afford to pay for the kinds of publications that I wanted to read while earning a journalist's salary. You know, as a college student as well, a lot of students are kind of financially constrained in terms of their spending power, even though they have a high earning potential. And so I figured, wow, if this is affecting me, I wonder how many millions of Americans or millions of readers worldwide are similarly frustrated by this pain point. And I looked around for inspiration, Spotify, Netflix, et cetera. They're both very affordable in terms of uh, consumer SaaS companies and they're products that I both love very dearly. And so I figured if they're able to you know, revolutionize music streaming and movies, why not news? And so that's what really inspired me to go found Zet. Who's your ideal customer profile? So if you were to identify them, who could that be? We're looking for people who are aspirational, who are curious, who are inspired to learn more about the world around them, whether they want to get involved politically and they're looking up local elections or they're curious about the latest vaccine developments and figuring out if they can travel during COVID or if they're in, let's say, a white collar job and they're trying to figure out okay, what does the market look like for stock investments right now? What does the competitors for my company look like? So as you can see, we're targeting quite a wide range of 
individuals and readers. But generally speaking, the thing that holds them all together is this passion and curiosity to learn more about the world around them. Amazing. And how did you earlier on decide on the pricing? Because I know you, you have $9.9 per month and you get access to certain credits, which you can use them in certain paywalled publications. So how did you determine that this is the right price? Maybe it's not from day one, but did you do any experimentation around this? So in terms of our pricing discovery, we actually wanted to match what was already in the market with Apple News. So Apple News Plus currently charges $9.99 a month. And just in terms of consumer psychology, $9.99 is a friendly number. It's a price point that is very familiar, very well known. I believe that's what Spotify charges for their premium subscription as well. The minute you start getting into double digits, whether that's, you know, $14.99 or higher, it seems like it's very expensive, even though it's just a couple dollars different. So that psychological measure is actually really important for consumer price points. And then finally, the way we backed into that from uh, 30 credits a month is that we wanted to have each article be substantial enough that publishers could still make money based off of, off of a revenue share, but also have enough credits for a consumer to be able to read through and utilize a month. So we ended up landing on about 33 cents per credit, which is just over a quarter, something I think most consumers would be very comfortable spending on an article that they really want to read. But that price point allows us to not only benefit publishers, but also give consumers at least 30 credits uh, that they can read with for an entire month. And then if they want to spend more, we have other tiers as well that allow them to scale up. Thank you for sharing this. I mean, you mentioned Apple News. Uh, you have other, I believe, similar uh, solutions like Blendel or Nickel Pass. Let's dive into your early, you don't have a paid customer use because you mentioned that you have a waitlist of 10,000. So what were your early acquisition strategies that you deployed to get 10,000 people waiting for your product to be released? Yeah. So when you see a big number like 10,000, it's easy to think that there is one big lever that we just pressed to get all 10,000 users. I think the reality is that we started with 10, then we got to 100, we got to our first 300 users, we got to 1,000, and then we kept building on and building and building. And so our effects were more so cumulative than they were you know, just dropping a huge number all at once. We've tried a lot of things, everything from uh, word of mouth to referrals to guerrilla marketing to going viral on Twitter, right? In sometimes unconventional ways to paid advertising where we advertise on Facebook and Instagram to organic press. So we've gotten uh, a lot of great press for Zet and also some controversial press for Zet, which both of which has, has really helped our traction and efforts. And then finally, you know, we always have an eye on growth and we've done everything from outbound email marketing to individually slacking every single person in a given tech community. We're just always throwing new growth experiments onto the wall, seeing what sticks. And we believe that it's important for us to drum up excitement, especially in advance of our public product launch. And then post product launch, we're going to see how well our users convert as well as how many of our users are recommending Zet to their friends. And that's going to be the true growth lever there, right? The product-driven and user-driven growth. So that's something I'm very excited about. If you were to double-click on two of these different tactics you deployed, which one do you think has served you the best? That's a great question. I would say one tactic that has served us really well has been getting press. 
I think perhaps uh, I have a bit of an unfair advantage having worked in journalism and understanding the dynamics of a newsroom. But when you get published in the press, whether that's in Forbes or Wall Street Journal or, or TechCrunch or elsewhere, you automatically have a very high visibility across different audience segments that might be interested in using your product. In our case, let's say we're published in TechCrunch, which we were about a month and a half ago. The TechCrunch audience is actually perfect in terms of early adopters for a tech product. And so it's almost like the press drives naturally a lot of attention through that audience back to our product. And then secondly, if I had to pick another growth tactic that worked really well, we actually had a referral system that we've uh, recently implemented into our product. So if you look up referral waitlist uh, services and also examples of successful referral systems, there's something about exclusivity or being able to move up and down a list if you can refer more of your friends that somehow seems to work in our favor. And so I can't remember the exact amount that our waitlist grew after we implemented referrals, but just having the ability to move up in line, I think is a really valuable psychological experience for users. What has been the most challenging this in terms of getting those 10,000? Any particular event or trigger that you could think of? I think in general, it's just difficult to build up demand for any product, no matter what you're doing. Capturing attention in a very crowded and noisy world is hard, right? At any given time, people have a million things to think about. And so uh, what we've realized actually is that there's a lack of user education around our space to the extent that people don't know what the word paywall means. So if I were to describe a paywall and describe the process of hitting it and not being able to read an article, you'd probably understand but we've actually tested some different keywords in our ads. And every time we use paywall, our ad effectiveness drops because that's just not a word that most people understand. So if I were to pinpoint one difficult part of getting to a waitlist that's that large, it would be that not a lot of people perhaps understand the exact problem that you're solving. But with a little bit of user education, I think that can actually be corrected. You have major licensing deals with companies like Forbes, New Scientist, Hertz, and I think you're adding more and more publications. Probably you're at, if I read correctly, you're more than 80 plus other publications. What was your convincing pitch to get these publications on board? Because I believe you got rejected a lot of times saying, okay, we don't want to be behind your paywall. So what was your pitch for this? Ultimately, I think in order to build a successful multi-generational business, you always need the new generation to find and discover your products and services. One thing that the news industry has not done a super good job in, in my opinion, is advertising to Gen Z and millennials. I think that increasingly they're realizing that most of their paid user base are significantly older. Famously, I think the Wall Street Journal's average subscriber is a 60-year-old white man, right, who's economically well-off. And this is not what America looks like today, right? America is largely comprised of minorities, younger populations, individuals who might not have tremendous you know, financial capital, but are still interested in the world around them and reading news and keeping up to date with what's happening in society. And so I think a really compelling argument is that we're creating a new way, a gateway drug, so to speak, for Gen Z to start reading the news. And eventually we can develop them into really loyal paying customers who really care about the quality of their news sources and can grow with the brand over time. 
That's very helpful. If you were to measure how many times you got rejected from going in front of publications, how did that affect your grit and resilience and perseverance to continue with that? Wow. I think it's hard to even remember all of the rejections. I couldn't give you a number or essentially I tried to pick out macro reasons or patterns about why rejections happen. But in the long run, I think it's the successes that you remember the most. And ultimately, the people who reject you will come around again when they are seeing that you are successful. This is something that I've both seen firsthand and experienced in my life, not only with publishers, but also with investors, where sometimes we would get rejected by certain investors who would then come back into a round and want to invest later once we were already oversubscribed. And so a no never means never. It just means not right now, or perhaps it's a little too risky from our vantage point, or perhaps we're too busy as a company, but honestly has not discouraged me. And if anything, what it's made me realize is that if you really want something, there will always be another entry point into that as long as you persevere and, and you don't stop believing in yourself. Amazing. Thank you for sharing this. Let's shift gears a little bit. So entrepreneurs, anxiety is a topic a lot of people avoid. And as founders, we tend to suffer from it, right? Is there strategies or tactics you use yourself to keep anxiety in a cage? Anxiety is a really tough problem to manage, especially as a founder, because as a leader of an organization and someone who's trying to affect change across an industry, you know, who are you going to talk to about your anxiety? You can't tell your colleagues or your employees. You can't tell your partners. It's difficult to open up to your investors. And so it's something that I've had to learn to manage myself. One thing that's really helped in terms of strategies to manage my anxiety, at least, is to just be more open and bring in team members as much as I possibly can. So for example, if a certain email is giving me anxiety and I haven't responded to it in a few days, I will literally call a meeting with one of my uh, team members and say, hey, would it be okay if you just sat on this call with me as I finish this email? It'll be really quick. You can do other work. I just need someone here with me as I'm writing this email. And it used to be something that I was more ashamed of or embarrassed about doing and, you know, and asking for help until I realized that not only is there nothing to be ashamed of, but it's actually more fun. And uh, if you're on a call with someone else, they're getting work done, you're getting work done. There's no decline in productivity. There's nothing that you're doing wrong. If anything, a lot of the stress is natural and just having someone sitting with you or having someone with you in that moment of compassion is sometimes all you need for the anxiety to go away. Great advice. And definitely there's no shame in asking for help, especially when it comes to mental health, I believe. Is there a childhood event that you remember that has influenced you to, be to become an entrepreneur? That's a good question. I think um, I grew up in a family that always struggled with money. I remember how my mom would save coupons to go to the store and just purchase things that were on sale. And we were always just very cognizant about what we needed to pay the bills. And so my parents always stressed the value of money and how difficult it was to earn money. And so I think that when I was growing up, I realized that by creating value for the world, that's actually an easier way to make money 
in the long run than just giving time in exchange for money, right? And by becoming the inventor of that value or the originator of that value creation, you can not only benefit so many more people, but um, you start thinking beyond just the you know, financial constraints of working for a salary, you start actually allocating capital and investing, uh, right? As a founder, I receive investment from my company, but I also have to allocate that investment to get an ROI. And so it completely changed my relationship around money. And I would say that um, one of the reasons I'm so thrifty, right, and try to kind of be a savvy businesswoman is because I understand how difficult that it is to kind of have that money in the first place and to have the opportunities that I've had to pursue the business interests that I've had. If you were to gift one book that has influenced you, what book would you give? Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson. I read it when I was 16 and it's always stayed with me. And like many entrepreneurs, I have a lot of space in my heart for Steve Jobs. And obviously he's been a role model. He's an imperfect person. I think that they're He has a lot of flaws that have, you know, been spoken about in the press and by other Apple employees as well with his personal life, et cetera. But in terms of entrepreneurship, he's definitely one of the defining iconic entrepreneurs of our generation, if not the history of time, I would say, in terms of how much Apple has changed the landscape of technology and consumer products. And so uh, reading about Steve Jobs' life definitely was pivotal for my entrepreneurial development, and I would highly recommend it to any um, aspiring entrepreneur. Is there any principle that you use to design that from Steve Jobs' learning? Yes. There's this interesting design and detail orientation that Steve carried with him during his days at Apple that I think we've tried to hold true to. I genuinely think that there's so much about brand and aesthetics and uh, well-designed user experiences that can make or break a product, right? And so when talking about elegance and product design and simplicity, sleekness, beauty, aesthetics in general, these are principles that we try to keep in mind at Zet as well as minimalism because Steve Jobs is famously extremely minimal. And so I always tell my team, you know, keep it simple. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. If there's too many bells and whistles, if it's over-designed, it's not simple enough. And I really think that that principle has made it really useful for us to design products and technology that everybody can use. Yehong, what's next? Well, we're going straight to the moon. I mean, there's so many publishers that we want to onboard onto Zet. There's so many more users that we would like to hear about us and our mission and what we're trying to do to democratize access to journalism. And so we're raising a seed round right now. On, and once that closes, we're going straight to Series A and beyond. And so that's kind of what my roadmap and my vision looks like for now. But I'd love to touch base in a year or two and see uh, how we're performing on that. Amazing. Thank you for being part of our show. How can people reach you? So they can actually go to zet.com, Z-E-T-T-E.com, and sign up for a waitlist in order to receive uh, email invitations from yours truly. If they want to reach me and follow me more closely, they can follow me on Twitter at Yehongju. That's Y-E-H-O-N-G-Z-H-U. Thank you again. And we wish you the best of luck in your venture. Have a great evening. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. 
We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers.